News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel of the Daily Beast and the Daily News in Brooklyn. With me on the phone are Professor Christina Greer, Fordham University, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And Alex Wynn of Racket Media and so much else. And of Manhattan. Hello. Hello. You'll hear later from Chrissy talking with Wayne Ho, the chief executive officer of the Chinese American Planning Council, about how things are right now for Asian Americans in New York. And Alex Lin talking with Aaron Naprostek, the founder of Streets Blog and co-host of the War on Cars podcast. I was hoping to jump in with some uh, good news, but the last headline I saw is the two pet cats in New York have now tested positive for the uh, coronavirus, becoming the first domesticated animals in the U.S. with it. How did how did the owners of those cats know to take them to get tested? And how did the cats get tested? Well, more importantly, can the cats give it to the to their owners? That that is a big question. We know that the tiger has it. We know the pet dogs and cats tested positive elsewhere, and the ferrets have got it in labs. There's something deranged about you. The excessive concern that you have for ferrets is something you should examine with a therapist. But I don't think we know how these cats got tested in the first case. We know that they both were showing mild respiratory illness. The Senate has passed a second round of PPP loans. The House is expected to follow shortly. That deal did not end up including any funding for the states whose budgets have all been shot to hell, New York's in particular, by the virus. We're going to find out if in this second round, small businesses like my wife's actually end up getting any of the money or if this goes to places like Axios, the venture capital funded news site covering Washington that got $5 million in the uh, first round and says they're being very transparent by sharing that. And this is good news and Shake Shack, which returned the money and lots of other big places, which somehow seem to jump the lines as large banks decided effectively who was and wasn't going to get that money. Alex, I know you've seen some causes for optimism for what New York might be like on the other end of this. Uh, What are you, what are you seeing? What are you thinking about? Well, I have been slightly optimistic this week, and it's not because I have some sort of restored faith in human beings as a whole, but it is because I'm seeing trends of necessity for us to be a better city and a better state. So out of necessity, right, we have to start taking better care of our lower income workforce. We have to start taking care of their health. Not for altruistic reasons, but apparently now, since everyone can infect everyone with COVID, it's in rich people's best interest, basically. But at least it's in somebody's best interest who might have a little bit of power. I think that most notably comes today with de Blasio's announcement that NYCHA will now have more access to PPE and hand sanitizer is going to be handed out to seniors. But that's not all. The city is opening six new testing centers specifically aimed at NYCHA. So the first three are opening on Friday, one in Crown Heights, one in Mott Haven, and one in LES. And then next week, there's going to be three open actually in NYCHA facilities, one at the John Williams Houses in Williamsburg, Woodside Houses in Queens, and St. Nicholas Houses in Harlem. So 
that's going to be a lot better for hardest hit communities, especially since NYCHA's buildings have been in disrepair for years. Maybe the quality of life will get a little better. They'll stop just allowing the water to be shut off for weeks on end. And then another good thing, sort of, is that as Cuomo has described over and over again in the pressers in the last week, one of the biggest log jams in trying to get testing, which would then implement testing and tracing in our new normal, is that most of the chemicals to complete the test come from somewhere in Asia. And the international supply chain is slowing things down because there's such a huge demand for those chemicals. There's 30 private manufacturers. They all have different proprietary tests and chemicals, and all the chemicals come from overseas. So this puts a lot of onus on bringing manufacturing of certain items back to America. And Cuomo is just you know, waving the flag of like, let's bring manufacturing back to not just America, but the Northeast, especially for PPE. And de Blasio following that is now championing the fact that we are gaining a new ventilator manufacturing hub, I think in Sunset Park, but also Navy Yards. We're going to be manufacturing our own tests. We're going to be buying test kit parts, I think, from Carmel, Indiana, we're also going to be making our own right in the city. So all of that is, is you know, cool as a concept, but what's really cool about it is that there'll be manufacturing jobs. We can get back some of these jobs that were like stepping stone jobs for immigrants and for people that can assimilate into the middle class. We can actually create the kind of hub that made this port city great in the first place. The two big crises of my lifetime in New York, born in 77, in a lot of ways were were 9-11 and the 2008 financial crash. They felt that way at the time. And one thing that's interesting is, financially speaking, New York has been getting progressively richer over my whole life. And it's become more of a global city and more of a global finance city over that stretch. And so, you know, the price of everything just goes up and up and up. And we actually had much faster than anticipated recoveries after 9-11, economic ones. And after 2008, when the U.S. took a really, really hard shot. And in New York, it was like a one-year lag. Homeowners in Southeast Queens and a few other places got hit hard. But for the most part, the city just kept turning and getting richer and richer and more and more expensive, I think because the world's money was flowing here. And so, you know, if you live here, you're actually competing with global capital for shelter and for everything else. And I'm hopeful that if this crisis represents some turn back toward regionalism and toward parochialism, that we might have a city that's better able to provide its own food. Where the price of living is more closely associated with, you know, how much money people here are making and people here. And, you know, a real shift in how office space works and with that retail and with that residential, that maybe we do end up in some ways sort of rebalancing some of the excessive gains, if you like, of the last 40 years and and becoming a saner and more livable city. I I know that's a few steps ahead, but, you know, it's been on my mind. I mean, Harry, I would love to think that. I, I, I think that two things have to happen because, unfortunately, sometimes when we emerge from trauma and a crisis, some people want to go back to stability and back to the past, which sort of cuts off some of that innovation. And I think it's up to the leadership 
of, you know, elected officials oftentimes, but not just, you know, grassroots organizations, but electeds to help push forward a new vision of the city. And I'm not fully confident that the mayor we currently have is that person to help us do that. And I fear that the the type of mayor that some people will want on the other side of this is going to be more like a Bloomberg, like someone who's wealthy, who can make sure we just focus on the economics again, the way we saw post 9-11, um, and leave out some of those critical elements that you just mentioned. I, I think that's very likely. And Bloomberg, of course, was talking up, or his people were talking up, Andrew Yang in a pretty big way, who's made his interest in maybe running for mayor known. He's not actually you know, a super wealthy business guy himself, and he might not be that avatar, but I do think that this really scrambles the politics going forward and opens up a big lane for an outsider to say, this is what the city needs now. And like, let's get us back on course instead of trying to correct and learn. But we'll see. It's a, it's a weird moment for that. It was a weird moment for the mayor to bring up a ticker tape parade to celebrate healthcare workers and Ooh. New Yorkers in general. I mean, it just seems like a little far off in a world where people can't even stand or ought not stand six feet close to each other. It seems like he's really, really. He didn't want to cancel the St. Paddy's Day parade, right? On the last night, bars were open. He said, go out and get to your bars. Right. I have, I have a big theory on this. I wrote a column for the Daily Beast that was actually more about Cuomo and Trump. Uh, but touches on this. If you're watching these coronavirus briefings for free, you're a sucker. <laughs> the truth is that if you have to go up and say shit every day and executives get to do that because they control the new numbers and like the new facts. And they also know the things they're going to declare with significant powers going forward. Right. But if you get in the habit of doing this every day and you get too into having that TV time, suddenly you have to have little monologues and fireside soliloquies to show how human you are. So if you're Andrew Cuomo, you're talking about your daughter's boyfriend in, in ways. And if you're Bill de Blasio, you're just like, yeah, we're, we're going to have a big parade when this is all over. Don't get me wrong. It's insane. My strong feeling is these guys should be putting out numbers, answering questions from the press, and then maybe once a week having these briefings. When you have to do it every day, you know, it's like any TV show that jumps the shark. They're looking for, for stuff to say and to keep those cameras on them. And I think that's – I understand the need to get information out, but I think it's really becoming unhealthy. And, and you're seeing this particularly with de Blasio because he, he stinks at this. And has a real, real talent for putting his very large foot in his very large mouth as a very tall guy. Well, I think, you know, I mean, beyond the, the safety element of possibly asking thousands of people to convene shoulder to shoulder to celebrate, I guess, not dying in this, this tragedy. <laughs> I mean, what came to mind the minute I read it was, don't you think that whatever money you're going to spend on this parade is better spent? on anything other than this parade. Like we know <laughs> that there's so many New Yorkers. I mean, I don't know if you all saw the lines in Harlem for particular churches that were giving out, you know, bags of food. I mean, the line was stretched around the block. So the same way we saw last month with lines around the block for Trader Joe's, we're now seeing lines around the block for churches that are offering food. And so we know that there's so many people after 2008 never fully recovered. It's taken just until now for them to barely get on their feet financially. And this is a, a, a global economy where we have millions of New Yorkers who have nothing coming in, no money, no, no prospects of money. So I don't care if this parade costs, you know, $10,000, which we know it won't. But, like, don't you think that that $10,000 could somehow go to New Yorkers or that $100,000 or that $1 million 
could somehow I mean, the, funnel into New Yorkers for a better anything. I mean, the parade at the moment is fantasy for like a new reality post-vaccine. But what isn't fantasy is the very real decision to do a fireworks show with Macy's. I mean, Good God, what are you like on the Jesus. right on the fourth of July? And he says Macy's is paying for it, but like you can't Did Macy's commit- back your, like give your employees some money then. I think all the all the furloughed Macy's employees would much rather a freaking paycheck than some cowboy hat fireworks. And as I'm going to talk with Aaron about a little bit later in the episode, or maybe use some of the cops that it's going to take to facilitate such a fireworks thing and like close down one or two big avenues or boulevards just to allow people a little breathing room in a very dense city. Blasio talked about that again today. He's been getting pressed to do this. And he said he would, but New York really isn't like other places. And California, they all drive good and we're... Different driving culture. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And that consequently, closing streets here was too difficult. It seems like a very, very strange principle to rest on right now when when no one is driving and streets are empty and many of us live on very tight blocks. So there really isn't space if you're outside at all. The sidewalks aren't even that wide. But that's the mayor we have, at least for now. There was another piece of uh, vaudeville this week between <laughs> Cuomo and Trump. And I do have to applaud, I think it was Bernadette Hogan, who read aloud a tweet from Trump questioning the leadership of Cuomo while a Cuomo presser was on. She read the tweet aloud and Cuomo answered with a nine minute, what I call a New York thank you. Now, I'm not just like a cheerleader for Cuomo, but I did appreciate this nine minutes of very PowerPoint based smackdown of the assertion in the federal government that we overstepped the mark in New York because primarily it was based on projections that the entire country should still be worried about, but were worried about at the time. So uh, if you haven't seen it, it's it's pretty good. Yep, Trump was talking about Cuomo asking for way too many ventilators, which he did. And Cuomo said, well, you know, those were your projections. This is what you told us we needed. Are you kidding me? It was a very effective moment in their uh, in their clash, which both men say was resolved in a face-to-face meeting with Cuomo going down to Washington on Thursday. Uh, we will see, of course, if that remains the case. But with that, Chrissy, who'd you talk with this week? This week, I spoke to Wayne Ho. Let's take a listen. I am Christina Greer co-host of FAQ NYC. It's a beautiful Tuesday, April 21st. I'm speaking to Wayne Ho, who is the president and CEO of the Chinese American Planning Council, an organization that helps with social services and advocacy. Wayne, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. The family's safe and I'm safe during this time. So that's good. How are you doing, Christina? Thanks for inviting me to it. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you're able to join us on the podcast. And I so appreciate it because I know that you're quite busy with uh, helping to provide services to a myriad of New Yorkers. I wanted to ask you about some of the services that you all are providing, and then also talk a little bit about the anti-Asian American biases that we've been seeing for quite some time now, and then maybe a little bit about your advocacy programs for our listeners. So can you just start by telling us, A, a little bit more about the Chinese American Planning Council and some of the services that you all have been providing during this crucial time? 
So CPC, uh, we are 55 years old and we provide services in the areas of education, family supports, and economic and community empowerment. So we serve about 60,000 New Yorkers a year and employ about 5,200 New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. And the city and state have deemed that some of our services are essential and that all of our workers are essential workers. So uh, what that means then is we are continuing to do our Meals on Wheels programs where we prepare meals and drop off meals to seniors that are homebound. We continue our home care programs. So we are seeing a couple thousand homebound seniors or people with disabilities every day to make sure that they're okay to continuing our residential programs. So we have affordable housing, senior housing, as well as a residence for people with disabilities. And these programs are continuing in person. So I want to commend my staff who are so dedicated and committed that they are risking their own health as well as their family's health to go in and provide services to other vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. uh, our other programs have transitioned to remote and virtual learning. So everything from our youth programs to some of our senior programs, as well as our adult literacy and job training programs. And how are you all faring since the fire? That was a few months ago, but it was right before the coronavirus really hit. How is your organization, but all the organizations that you work with, um, how are they doing? Yeah, it seems so long ago. Uh, Lunar New Year. It was on Lunar New Year Eve in January. There was the fire at 70 Mulberry Street, and we're one of five community organizations in that building. And it housed our senior center. Mm -hmm. At that time, that seemed like one of the biggest crises that we were facing for CPC. And we were fortunate that we worked closely with the city, found a new space very quickly, and were able to continue serving about 300 meals a day to seniors and having a safe place and spreading them across other senior centers we host. This past week, the city finally informed us that we could go in and safely take out the rest of our belongings, and they're gonna start demolishing the building. But that's three months ago, and mm -hmm. it seems so far back yeah, um, it's, during that time. Well, it seems like a lifetime ago because I remember checking in with you, and then I felt like a month later I checked in with you because I was reading some stories about anti-Asian American sentiments when the coronavirus first hit China and had not yet made its way to the United States and New York. So can you talk to us now about what you're seeing? Back then, you hadn't really seen a lot of anti-Asian American sentiment, but I know that that changed relatively quickly. It changed really quickly. And there were times a couple months ago where my community members or staff would go into Starbucks and they would happen to cough or sneeze and people would move away or make little comments like, oh, coronavirus. Or I was walking in Canal Street one day and some vendors in Chinatown were trying to get tourists to come into their storefronts. And I heard someone say, no, I'm not coming in. I might get coronavirus. And these were little microaggressions uh, that were starting back then. And now I have staff and community members who have had people spit on them. My friend, who's actually a doctor and lives in Murray Hill, was leaving a hospital and got punched in the face by a stranger. And she had to go back to the ER. So I had staff members who have been helping community folks and they got spat on and had things thrown at them. And it's really sad that people who are continuing to try and serve the community, who's everything from healthcare professionals to human services workers to grocers and restaurant workers who are basically keeping the city running, are being targeted by harassment and violence and hate crimes. Mm -hmm. 
So what kind of advocacy are you all working on as it pertains to hate crimes, but also some of the other work that your organization is providing? So our advocacy is focusing on two sides. Uh, first one is addressing anti-Asian harassment. And I want to acknowledge that the city of New York and specifically the Human Rights Commission, as well as Consumer Affairs and NYPD have been pretty proactive in reaching out to community groups. And at the beginning of the pandemic, before shelter in place, we were doing a lot of community forums and ensuring there's translated documents. Since then, the mayor's daily briefings, as well as uh, the first lady and others have been ramping up trainings around the bystander trainings and having documentation out there on how to report hate crimes. And we've been partnering with the DA's office and others to address it. But I think the larger issue that we're looking at, in addition to just dealing with hate crimes, is how are we going to sustain our services? Mm-hmm. I think we all know the state budget was not a good budget. It offset a lot of costs to localities had cuts to Medicaid, which is obviously critical to low-income communities and to the healthcare sector, which is more vital right now. And the mayor recently announced his executive budget, which cut a lot of human services, including summer programs like Summer Youth Employment and Compass and Sonic and Beacon, which are all critical programs to engage low-income communities and students of color, which are critical during this time. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us what is Sonic? I don't know what Sonic is and I don't know what Beacon is just in case sure. your listeners are as clueless as I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I'm using human services. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Compass and Sonic are the after-school programs that the city runs, and they're basically after-school for kindergarten through uh, high school, so just okay. different age groups. Beacon is a community center that operates out of a school site. So just the cuts that were proposed by the mayor for summer youth employment, Compass, Sonic, Beacon... For CPC alone, that's about $1.4 million in budget cuts. Mm -hmm. It means about 350 staff members will either be laid off, furloughed, or not get hired for summer jobs. It also means about 4,000 children and young people will not have summer activities or will not get summer jobs. And these are communities which right now are could be struggling due to the pandemic, have lost their jobs, and making sure that summer youth employment, for example, happens, that's money that goes straight into the pockets of young people for them to help their families get out of the pandemic and to recover as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, that was something that Marion Barry in Washington, D.C., when he was mayor, clearly noted just because crime goes down when kids have jobs and families are lifted, obviously, when you have someone who's able to contribute and provide. So, Wayne, I won't keep you too long, but what is it that you need, right? We're in such uncertain times. What do you think the next one month, I mean, we can't even plan too, too far ahead, but like, what does your organization need um, to continue to provide services to uh, vulnerable populations? I think any nonprofit organization right now just needs donations. Uh, It's great that we have volunteers that are coming or food that's being provided, but we need funding and we've stretched our own resources. Government funding is drying up. And by giving us funding, we are able to purchase either masks or PPEs. We can hire temps or keep staff employed, and we can define the technology and platforms to modify our services for the community. Also, we need the community to stand together and unite against any hate crimes or violence targeting Asian American communities or other communities. 
I think the larger thing we need for this community is we just need a recovery plan. At this time, we need to look at the relief efforts that are going on and make sure everyone is safe and healthy. At the same time, we need to start looking at recovery and recovery for the low income and immigrant communities, many who are left out of the federal stimulus plans. They need as much support as they can get. And that's why we at CPC continue to work with the city and state. We work with other allies in the neighborhood and the nonprofit sector uh, to make sure that we can start having recovery ideas for low income workers. Um, human services workers are deemed essential workers. So let's make sure that we look out for human services workers during this recovery, as well as low income immigrants and Asian communities. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for joining me this morning on FAQ NYC. I so appreciate all the work that you do as president and CEO of the Chinese American Planning Council. And I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners will be inspired to assist not just your organization, but all the nonprofits that are out there doing such great work. So thank you so much for joining us on FAQ. Thank you, Christina, and stay safe and be well. Thank you. That was great. Alex, who are you speaking with? I spoke with Aaron Napperstack this week because of all of the emphasis on transit in general. De Blasio not taking open streets seriously and also the possible demise of the MTA. And Aaron's a guy who pretty much lives and breathes that world. And so I wanted to know what he had to say about what's going on in the city and in the world in general when it comes to urban transit. Let's listen to Aaron. Welcome to FAQ, Aaron Napperstack founding editor of Streets Blog and co-host of The War on Cars, which I was on a little while ago with my Cadillac talking about why I have a Cadillac and how I don't use it for transportation at all. Uh, Recently re-aired, so to speak, on the internet. One of our favorite episodes ever, by the way. Thank you. We're talking today about New York transportation, open streets, the mayor's budget, cutting the task force on placard abuse, and what's going on right now, especially in the COVID crisis. You, Aaron, started Streets Blog basically on the notion of uh, combating placard abuse. Yeah, I mean, it, right. It's so, well, it was, it was, there was more to it than that. But I mean, literally the very first official blog post ever published on Streets Blog, the first article ever was about uh, placard abuse. And, um, you know, in a, in a way, yeah, like placard abuse was one of the animating issues of early streets blog, like back in 2005, 2006, when we started it up. And what a lot of people forget or, you know, never even knew was that the issue of government employees, public employees, you know, using parking placards to um, park illegally wherever they want in New York City. It, it's been around forever, but it was really exacerbated by another catastrophe, which was you know, the September 11th attacks. Um, and it was kind of like all of these first responders, you know, police officers and firefighters and everyone else kind of flooded into lower Manhattan and parked wherever they wanted because obviously it's a catastrophe. So who cares where you're parking? Um, but then, you know, we found like three, four years later, those first responders and their vehicles and their parking placards never left. (laughs) And 
So one of the things that, you know, when we were starting up Streets Blog in 2005, 2006, that was really interesting was we just kept getting these calls and emails from people and, and like activists in Chinatown and downtown Brooklyn and anywhere where there was like major, you know, um, public buildings, courts, police precincts, schools. And people were just so upset about the placard abuse they were seeing. And a lot of that placard abuse people felt like started not long after September 11th and grew worse and worse until, you know, Mayor Bloomberg finally cracked down on it in 2008. So now we're in a moment with another catastrophe with Mayor de Blasio, and it's been kind of a a long fight to get him to agree to more bike lanes and opening the streets. And now it seems like due to another catastrophe, we're rolling that back in a way. And there's been a lot of talk this week about just this uh, aversion to opening streets like other cities have done in Europe and in uh, the West Coast and things like that. Even today, as we're recording on Wednesday, he said that he was worried that there would be too many police needed to enforce the intersections, that New York had a different driving culture than California, and that the worry was without enough police to police the closure of streets that cars would drive down them anyway and kill children. I think that was the implication, leaving most of the press corps to scratch their head. Um, Especially this comes on the tail of after forming a placard abuse task force and then also implementing this, uh, you know, green wave plan, all of that gets cut back in the new budget. Right. Yeah, it's this really interesting moment where, you know, we have this incredible, you know, once in a century crisis upon us. And, you know, in some ways you'd think like, okay, livable streets advocates, people who've been fighting for like bike lanes and reallocating space on streets away from cars, you know, you guys need to put your issues aside and like focus on the pandemic and and solving the pro- all the problems related. And that's on the one hand sort of true. On the other hand, like the stuff that livable streets advocates have been fighting for for years and years is sort of more relevant than ever right now. Um, you know, like we're being asked to stay distant from each other when we travel outside. And that is pretty much impossible in New York City because sidewalks are so narrow and, you know, the space that we've allo- the public space that we've allocated for cars is is so vast. So people trying to pass each other on sidewalks and maintain social distance, it's really difficult. And what we're seeing in cities all around the world, um, and I think there's, a, there's an urban planner based in Brooklyn named Mike Lydon, who's actually keeping track of this on a Google spreadsheet right now. He, he's tracked over 100 cities around the world and in North America that have all done versions of what Mike is calling COVID streets, okay, COVID streets. So, you know, for example, like Oakland, the city of Oakland, which by the way, the DOT there is run by a former New York City guy, Ryan Russo. Oakland just set aside 10% of the city street network, 74 miles of streets as, as slow streets, as places where people can basically allow their kids out, you know, to ride around on a bicycle or can walk slowly or jog down the middle of the street. 
And basically those street users get priority and cars need to maintain 10 miles per hour or less. City of Paris is like really worried in this Paris, France. They're really worried that, you know, when when we come out of the coronavirus lockdown or start to come out of it, everybody's going to be terrified to ride on transit because of, you know, spread of the virus. And so the, the city streets are going to be choked with car traffic. So Paris is spending 300 million euros on a 650 kilometer bike network. That's just like cheap and quick and dirty. Facilities are going to be up and running by May 11th, specially designed for post-virus life. City of Milan in Italy hit incredibly hard. You know, like Northern Italy has just been kind of devastated by the virus. They're prioritizing, you know, making sure that when they come out of the worst of this lockdown, um, that they're going to have less car traffic than they than they did before, in part because one of the feelings is um, all of the air pollution in northern Italy is part of what caused some of the the um, devastation in, in, in the coronavirus lockdown, uh, the coronavirus. So anyways, all these cities around the world are doing it, and yet our mayor in New York is kind of doing the opposite and is just basically saying like, hey, it's impossible for New York City to do open streets. Uh, we tried a little quick trial, uh, very small amount of street space. Every intersection had four police officers standing in it. It was not a very thoughtful or well-designed experiment. It lasted for about, I don't know, two or three weeks, and then de Blasio shut it down. And I don't it think it even seemed, lasted that long. No, I don't think it, what was it, like two weeks and tops. But, you know, even in this budget he proposed, he's he's eliminating ideas that he ran on, like the the budget for the Vision Zero pedestrian safety stuff is being slashed. Um, budget. I, for I had a question for you about that, actually. So the the I've I've seen some um, uh, you know police precincts tweet out photos of seized motorcycles and dirt bikes and uh, four wheelers yep. and things like that, and they're going like still going strong on Vision Zero, and I'm thinking in my head. You know what? Nobody was talking about kids riding around on ATVs when, when, as far as I understood Vision Zero. So the cops kind of flaunting this seizure of illegal dirt bikes feels to me Vision Zero adjacent at best. Yeah. I mean, the police, the NYPD's role in Vision Zero has been really problematic from the beginning. Um, and a lot of, you know, um, social justice advocates and neighborhood groups and, um, you know, people were really concerned from the beginning that, you know, NYPD would sort of use the Vision Zero framework as just an excuse to kind of pull over and bother people they want to pull over and bother. And, you know, NYPD has always had a thing with uh, dirt bikes and ATVs and maybe that's good policy or not. But it, it really doesn't it really doesn't have that much to do with what Vision Zero was meant to do, which is to reduce the staggering amount of death and destruction caused by motor vehicles on New York City streets. I mean, ATVs and dirt bikes are probably not great in New York City, but they're really not the major cause of, you know, motor vehicle injuries, fatalities, and crashes. So it's it's weird that they focus on that and I mean, this was a problem going back to Bloomberg, but I just think we've reached a point where like our 
democratically elected civilian leadership seems to have very little control over what, you know, what the, uh, what the police do or don't do. Um, and I, I'm not sure how you deal with that. Um, that being said, I, I, I think the, the NYPD could almost certainly be better directed by our current mayor. So going forward during this crisis, what do you see like you have had your head in mass transit for cities, especially New York, for quite some time? Like what do you see going forward as some of the most important things that the city should be focusing on and what people should be looking to? I mean, look, like we should be focused on on doing everything we can to to get the pandemic under control. And so that means like implementing all kinds of best practices around testing and tracing and really, you know, quarantining folks who have the virus in a way that is like humane, safe and humane. Exactly. And like really putting the virus in a, in a tight box so that we can start to allow the rest of city life to continue from the transportation perspective. I'm so worried right now about what's happening to the MTA and the transit system. And I think that needs a lot more attention and urgency. It's a real emergency. Folks that work on this more closely, like John Caney, the director of reInvent Albany, I mean, he is full on ringing the alarm bells that the MTA is going to be bankrupt by the end of July or August. And, you know, there, there really aren't good, obvious, easy solutions for that right now. And that just seems like the, the number one issue that we need to be addressing right now. And I wish I had like a bunch of answers for you, but I don't, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to do about that, but yeah, the, the MTA is in a lot of trouble and that is the, you know, you know, I don't know, along with the water system, that's the backbone of New York City right there. So, I mean, look, like the obvious solution is we need our federal representatives to, you know, on, in Washington to go help us get federal money. I'd, I'd like to hear folks like, you know, Chuck Chuck Schumer and our, and our congressional reps talking more about the need to rescue the transit system. Um, thank you for giving us some insight on FAQ. I mean, I, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I wish we could have done this interview in the, in the Cadillac like yeah. we did last time, because that was, that's like truly the best recording studio in it New is. York City. I feel like when the Cadillac. The Alex Brooklyn Cadillac. Yeah. I feel like when the Cadillac dies, I'm going to find a place for it, or at least like gut the interior and just make, that will have to be the, uh, the, the studio. The acoustics are just that too good amazing. in the Velveteen. Exactly. F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC, ooh yeah. F-A-Q NYC, ooh yeah. F-A-Q NYC, ooh yeah. Um, do you want me to do the outro? Yeah, that was just my contribution. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
FAQ NYC is brought to you by NYU's McSilver Institute for Policy, Poverty, and Research. This week, we recorded in the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. We'd like to thank our guest, Wayne Ho, from the Chinese American Planning Council, and Aaron Napperstack from The War on Cars. As always, Adam Kamara served as our producer for this episode, and Alex Brooklyn as our executive producer. On behalf of Harry Siegel and myself, thanks for listening, and be safe. Bye. FAQ NYC. FAQ NYC. Frequently asked questions about what? Does that <laughs> give you corona? <laughs>